Hi, this is Af Mohotra, the host and founder of Straight Talk. What a pleasure it is to come back again. And um, today I have, I have an, an incredible guest and um, all our guests are incredible, of course, but to, every single time I do it, I feel it just gets more incredible. And so we have a, a great author, an intellectual, a um, economist, a um, thought leader, in many, many domains, but the domain we want to touch on today, of course, is something that matters to each one of us, uh, each one of us uh, who's in the straight talker community, which is food and the supply of food and the sustainability of food and how smart policies and the entire domain of health and the future of our planet, which, you know, we've discussed numerous times on the show, uh, needs to be re-examined under the banner of sustainable food. And in fact, that's what the book is, The Economics of Sustainable Food, Smart Policies for Health and the Planet. Let me welcome the great uh, Nicoletta Bettini. Uh, thank you for coming on to our show, Nicoletta. What a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Af. It's, uh, it is a honor to be, to be with you at Straight Talk. Yeah, uh, the honor is all ours. We're going to go go right into it, if that's okay, because that's how we do stuff here on, on Straight Talk. Now, you, of course, have many, many accolades. You, um, you can describe in a moment uh, who you are and what you do and why you do it, because, of course, that's a big part of the Straight Talk journey, the personal story. Um, and then we want to move into the book. And, of course, the book is just, you know, and I've had some time digesting aspects of the book and watching various interviews. Uh, it's a profound piece of work. It's we do something about it, as in we, all of us together, policymakers, yeah. leaders, and so on. Otherwise it would be criminal um, for you to produce this fantastic piece of um, uh, insight and data and even recommendations, uh, because there is a lot that you've touched on in this book that I believe is not, and, and you say it's for economists, but actually I would argue it's for, for anyone who frankly cares about food supply and the future of food and sustainability. And of course, the next few generations, because we, as a parent, I care about how my children are going to survive in this weird and wonderful world, uh, especially the 2050 goal being something that matters to us all. So we're going to talk a lot about that. And we'll just go with the flow, as you, as you know, with Straight Talk. So firstly, um, what should we know about you, Nicoletta? Who, who are you? How did this all start? And I'm talking way before the book. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background, your story, um, and because that leads into, I guess, eventually why you wrote the book. All right, so uh, uh, thanks again. Uh, let me make a, a, a tiny disclaimer at the beginning, which however is important for, for the audience. Uh, I um, work at the MF, so I'd like to make a disclaimer about what I'm gonna say next. Uh, not just, not about me, but mostly about other concepts we're gonna explore together uh, that might, the views I'll express in this uh, video cast and podcast are my own and not of the IMF's board or the IO, which is the office within the IMF for work for. Uh, close parenthesis, let me go to myself. So I'm um, a macroeconomist by background. Uh, I have um, uh, studied economics all my life and worked uh, in economic related agencies all my life. And my career after PhD uh, at Oxford University in uh, monetary economics started at the Bank of England, which is, uh, you know, the, the center of monetary economics in the UK. And uh, I had a few years there um, with also some uh, senior positions uh, advising the committee that sets the interest rates. You'll be familiar with that. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, I moved on to the research department of the International Monetary Fund, where I yeah. 
prepared for some of the um, flagship publications that the IMF puts out, the World Economic Outlook and so forth. And I touched a bunch of topics there, and then I left to represent the IMF in Peru for two years, uh, where I was the resident representative, uh, following a program that the fund had uh, lent to the country. Um, coming back to the US, I followed the United States and Canada during the financial crisis, mm. and then moved to work on Europe. So I had several positions. I also took a couple of years off to work for the Italian government as director of the International Economic Office of the Treasury there. Um, and, uh, and then I came back to the, to the IMF in DC where I'm currently um, worked on France. And lately I am a lead evaluator for the IMF Independent Evaluation Office, which is basically an office that kind of assesses the performance of the IMF. It's not an auditor, but it looks at, you know, whether they give good advice, it was even hand and so forth. So uh, now I'm working on a big evaluation of the fund emergency response to the pandemic, right. for example. Now, as, um, as part of my work, um, I came across multiple times issues related to, uh, you know, um, public health. I've worked uh, a lot besides monetary policy on fiscal policy. And fiscal policy is often uh, very impacted by uh, health spending. Right. And uh, uh, I am originally from Italy. I'm Italian, like 100%, I should say. Mm. Um, and, and uh, you know, we, we put a lot of emphasis just as from, from birth, I think, on nutrition. So, uh, uh, you know, we pride ourselves with the Mediterranean diet. And I think it's the, you know, the, the conjunction of that kind of deep subconscious uh, knowledge and sort of acquire literacy of, of how to nourish myself and, uh, you know, just a cultural knowledge that I, I came with um, uh, together with um, having lived, you know, in Northern countries and countries in different, uh, you know, habits in eating, it may be more processed food. And then coming to the understanding that, that these might be behind a lot of the, uh, um, you know, ailments that people have, and that has an impact on fiscal houses, which yeah. of course, not just me personally as an economist and as a, as a, um, advisor or policymakers, it, you know, it all came together at some point uh, for me, especially after I had served uh, as a, a principal economist on uh, the Nordics um, and Austria, where I wrote, you know, papers about the connections of fiscal spending with, with, uh, with health and public health spending. And these are countries that spend a lot on health um, mm -hmm. as a public provider. And so I, I you know, I really dig down you know, the roots of what caused those expenditures and, you know, what were the diseases that were more prevalent and, you know, what, what might be the root cause of those. After all this, um, you know, like uh, following almost a, a, an invisible path. I mean, I wasn't driven by any specific interest. Uh, I came to read and see documentaries about, you know, the links between food systems and the planet. Right. And so for me, it kind of clicked that um, as economists, we have the levers and as, as humans, as people, as uh, you know, communities, we have the levers in our hand to simultaneously fix a number of problems that go from economics to planetary stability. And uh, I wrote a first draft of what I considered, you know, a visionary 
you know, working paper, if you wish, called uh, Five Birds with One Stone. Because mm -hmm. I, I said, if we fix this system, the food system, we can fix, you know, public health, we can fix, you know, uh, the, the ecology or stabilize planet Earth, we can fix, mm -hmm. you know, um, public finances, we can fix, you know, asset prices and so forth. And, I, and, mm -hmm. and this paper then formed the basis of this book. Uh, I thought I really need to uh, go deeper on this because this is, is there's a lot of material here and there's a lot of areas that um, I myself you know have to learn about. And so I decided to do an edited contribution uh, volume, uh, which I write myself several chapters, but also others are, I team up with other experts, you know, from mm -hmm. professors entomology to people who are uh, clinical nutritionists, people who have you know, agricultural economists, um, uh, physicians, and so forth to create, you know, to, to really cover the ground in this very complex and multifaceted war that um, stays and sits at the nexus of um, food systems, uh, the planet, and the economy. Mm, so that just, I hope that that gives some some idea of my journey. Um, yeah, yeah, no, it does. There are a few things I just want to pull out from that because that's very important. So when you talked about your Italian heritage, uh, you, you raised a very important point <clears throat> because when you're growing up and the family structure you have and the, the culture, the subculture you come from, uh, that has a lot to do with your understanding of um, food, your understanding of whether it's just a means to an end or actually, in fact, it is a critical uh, source of goodness, nourishment, happiness, even. And it, it can put you in a great state or in a bad state, right. mentally and or physically. And I resonate with that because originally I come from, you know, India. And if you think of the similarities, and I've spent many, many uh, months and a lot of time in Italy as well, different parts of Italy for, for other things. And I see the similarities, the crossovers in certain cultures where food is like a religion. You know, it's, it's, it's serious stuff. Like you don't mess around with it. And right the way from home, then into the school and then into later stages of your life, it is part of how you look at the world. And when that's disrupted or it's uh, destabilized uh, and a tomato is tasting odd or the recipe feels artificial, it is a, it's a fundamental problem as opposed to, well, let's just buy the jar and get it over and done with. And when I look at the West, and India is the same, by the way, India and the relationship with Ayurveda and food and the entire science of Ayurveda from using, using curcumin and pepperin together, as opposed to just curcumin and the com combination of different Ayurvedic herbs, which now is very popular in the West, is what has kept that civilization thriving for many years. But the problem I feel, which I now I'd like to touch on, which you raised in your book, and I've seen uh, some excellent sort of discourse on it, is this, you know, this concept of um, let's look at the West for a moment and, and, and look at the West from the point of view of the biggest contributors to green, uh, greenhouse gases or the emissions that come from it. And uh, so for, for, our, for our straight talkers as well, not everyone is as equipped and educated in, the, in food sustainability. So you might have to go back to basics for a moment. But help us understand, uh, firstly, when you say sustainability of food, um, how would you define that um, at the highest level? And then I'll come to my second or third level of question. So when you say sustainability of food, what do you mean? What, what does that mean to all of us? 
Um, in essence, um, th there's a definition that is now um, accepted about uh, this sustainable diet, uh, more than sustainable, which goes hand in hand with a sustainable food system that is the one that uh, supplies it. And that is basically a diet that is both nutritionally complete and that is uh, producible, you know, uh, for uh, permanently in the future, also for future generation, uh, condition on existing plant planetary resources. So um, this is a, like, a, there's a complex geometry problem here because you want to make sure that people, each one of us and the future generations, even with growing population, will have sufficient and healthy nutrition in their diet. And that diet is not orthogonal to the ability of the planet to sustain the production of those, those diet in a cumulative uh, sense, both across uh, people and across time in the future. So that's, that's a, I mean, it sounds difficult, but I think people appreciate that, you know, if, if some of us uh, is eating in a way that is unsustainable, of course, it's taking away from the plate of others right. in the current times, or in the future. And so sustainability goes both for um, human health and for planetary health. Mm. It's not just it's not just planetary health, it's actually human health to uh, the way I interpret sustainability. Right. And what is the what is the problem now? How how would you describe, you know, on one end of the spectrum, the most catastrophic aspects of the problem you see today? I mean, why are we here? Why did you write this book? Right, so, so the problem now is a problem that really emerged in the last, over the course of the last, let's say, um, uh, 50 years. Right. Uh, so I should say maybe, um, maybe 60 years when the so-called green revolution happened. There's nothing green about the green revolution, <laughs> basically. Uh, it's an industrialization of agriculture and that happened uh, in the decade, uh, first and second decade following the end of the Second World War, when a lot of, you know, military uh, technological innovation were redeployed to agriculture. I mean, it, it, people don't know about this, but a lot of the fertilizers that we use, the pesticides, the herbicides, are actually poisons that were used and invented uh, during Second World War for biological um, and chemical warfare. Uh, mm -hmm just now used to kill bugs or microorganisms. Mm, um, yeah. And uh, we have applied in those two decades following the end of the Second World War machinery uh, that we have, you know, again, some of which was redeployed directly from the military. Mm. Some was invented specifically like harvester, mulchers, uh, and all sorts of things that you know, move the crust of the earth in a, in a very powerful way which impacts, of course, the, the health of the soil and uh, the sustainability of what is done over and over again. Right. Uh, in, in the marine domain, um, the, um, uh, the sonar that had been invented, you know, in the course of between the two wars, I think, um, was redeployed to commercial fishing. So now commercial fishing fleets could find and locate fish anywhere in the want they wanted, including the high seas, through these equipments that were, you know, military. Yeah. Um, now, all that uh, basically has led to uh, an intensification of agriculture, and, and agriculture has become 
an industry uh, and and animals and plants and everything that is nature became a cog into this big uh, you know gray factory right. that is industrial agriculture. Uh, as part of that, um, because of the you know the, the the energy requirements of this new kind of um, uh, approach to to growing food, um, a lot of fuel now goes and has gone since into the production of food. So fuel, uh, by which I mean fossil fuels, mm-hmm. and that made agriculture uh, additionally more emitting as a sector. And there's a there's a there's a, a an additional um, uh, factor which is that thanks to all these techniques we have been able to raise and and the industrialization not just of plant agriculture or crop agriculture but also animal agriculture been able to intensify the way we uh, we breed animals and mm-hmm. now we breed them in the billions and in fact there are uh, currently on the planet there are about um, you know. Se- like 10 times the number of, of human beings that so we're talking about uh, 75 billion animals are bred and slaughtered every year for our consumption. And that kind of makes sense because we probably eat mm. each one of us, you know, 10 chicken or mm. five chicken and half a pig. You know, if you think about it, it's not that, you know, it, it does actually uh, square the, yeah. uh, the count. Now, the intensification of animal agriculture is even worse than, than just crop agriculture because animals, of course, are, uh, eat uh, large quantities of, uh, of, of plants uh, and we need to produce those to feed those animals that then we eat. But, but the ratio by which we get protein and calories out of animals is much less than what we would get directly if we ate directly those crops. And right. so what's happening is that we're using the plants in a very inefficient manner and this diet, which is heavy on animal protein, and we'll talk about it um, later, is basically um, destro- destroying the planet at a very accelerated pace. Mm-hmm. Once you combine it with you know, population growth and a shift in diets up the food chain so that people want more of those animal protein, especially those population that didn't have access to all these animal proteins before, you have an explosive cocktail. And that's what, you know, creating all the issues that make me very worried and make me think, you know, we as um, policymakers, I say we sort of a general sense, but policymakers have stacked the cards to favor the system, this industrialized mm-hmm. system. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, I think it's in their ballpark to change the rules and the economic policies to make sure that we, uh, we redress food systems to make them sustainable. So, mm. and this is a, a topic which is uh, underanalyzed because most people talk about maybe agriculture, maybe food system, maybe diets, but they never talk about the the complexity of the relation. And even when they do, and now there are you know, mm. committees, there's been the UN Food System Summits uh, last year, they don't talk much about the economic levers that need to be utilized to uh, put this food system, our food systems on a, on a sustainable, inclusive and ethical path. Mm. And, and the, mm. the book does that. And it, it looks at both land and seas, right. both advanced economies and uh, developing economies. Um, and it looks at the various facets of land use and sea use, which is not 
the way we use land is for multiple reasons. Right? We use it for urban reasons. We use it for to grow food. We use it for uh, um, you know conservation. And so in the book, we look at also how to uh, triage the use of land and mm. seas such that you know we get the maximum out of them for you know for food and for replenishing um, the biodiversity that we have destroyed through these practices. Mm. I want to touch on that's very very insightful and I think you've stitched it all together and I, what I'm picking up is you're talking about the holistic nature of these dimensions as opposed to the siloed analysis which happens and sometimes that analysis is also based on like you said policymakers have whatever system that they've endorsed or agenda that they they're driving which has its own sort of ramifications i just want to touch on um one i'm going down different pathways because the questions are coming to my mind so when you think about behaviors and you so the concept you've laid out i would imagine the if someone says have you nicolette have you laid, laid a blueprint of some sort out where you're saying these are the things we can do uh, to drive change then of course you have to to a large extent and that's welcome to your cat what's her name or his name? Okay. His name is Yang. Like Yang. Like, okay. Like in Ying and Yang. Oh, nice. Okay. Lovely. Well, welcome, Yang. We've 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 had cats and uh, cats and animals before, so more than I welcome. promised he would show up. <laughs> <laughs> he had the he had the conversation. He's like, I've got to get into that discussion straight away. So, um, and he and animals are a huge part of it, which I'll come to in a second. So, um, when you think about human behavior, which is an important area of study for us as well. What do you believe are some of the, the reasons why um, we haven't got our act together, whether it's, um, you know, the corporations, well, we can, I guess you can answer that more simply, whether it's the, the policymakers uh, and even the NGOs and non-government organizations and so on. Um, what has inhibited us or stopped us from actually taking the right steps? I know it's complex, but I'd like your opinion and view on it. Um, as um, you know, succinctly as possible. So you you give your take on it pretty much straight away. Uh, I think that's that's a question that comes around a lot, and I think the answer is uh, it's not much what has uh, what is stopping us from from you know addressing this properly. It's more what keeps us doing the wrong things. Mm-hmm uh because you know to to redress something you need to take stock and understand that you're doing the wrong thing and and that requires a lot of things aligned and i think uh there's a still a tremendous amount of misinformation of you know what is food what is food for what is healthy food and that a lot of that is guided by you know really corporations and the industry and the you know agricultural um industrial um, to some extent, also government nexus, you know, mm-hmm. political nexus that prevents, uh, I think, people from making the right choices. Some of that is information. So just, you know, people think that uh, you're not going to die if you eat a fried Mars bar. Um, mm. And, and you know, they don't, you know, um, but other people um, just don't have the money to buy the food that is healthy. So there's really a, a, a financial constraint in accessing mm. a, a sustainable and healthy diet. And some other people just don't have access to their food physically. You know, there are food deserts and uh, and policies have a lot to do with this. I mean, it's cheaper in the in many countries to buy a piece of meat, bad, bad, bad quality meat than it is mm. to buy an apple. Mm. You know, uh, 
you can run all the educational campaigns you want, but then when people come inside the grocery store, I'm going to put him out now because he's purring a lot. Um, it, that, you know, people for long, consumers have three main drivers of consumption in food were, you know, taste, price, and convenience. Now that's changing a bit, and Deloitte has done run surveys lately, and they show that uh, people are more inclined to also consider health and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, welfare of animals and aspects like and the planet. But mm -hmm. you know that needle is shifting very slowly, and it's it's fomented and supported by, in many cases, wrong policies that subsidize the wrong food mm -hmm. and disincentivize the growing, the distribution, and uh, education campaigns about good food. So I think mm -hmm. I think it's a combination of factors, um, but government has a big stake in it, and it needs to it needs to take action. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna. Yeah, that's fine. And I and I think I just playing back what you're just saying, <clears throat> the, you know, the barriers to to seismic change or transformation happens to be always, unfortunately, human barriers. You know, you can talk about. Um, technology and the role of technology, good or bad, and we talk a lot about the digital world order. But after all, at the end of the day, it's down to you know motivations and incentives or lack of incentives. And so, if the system is to be reprogrammed, Nicolessa, uh, on, on just on human behavior side, um, with all of this amazing work that you've done, how do you you know it's a personal question? How do you feel about this? Because you know you've written this fantastic piece of um, literature, and um, it's pragmatic in many ways. But then again, there's a reality that you could publish as much as you want and you can educate as much as you want. But these, these people who are at the helm, many of them aren't willing to change, even at the detriment, as you quite rightly put it, of us going way beyond the 1.5 degree mark. I was watching one of your presentations and it was, uh, you know, I'm a climate realist. And when I watched that and I thought, great, you've just reinforced my hypothesis that this is not looking anywhere close to what we think it should be. Even I think you made a comment, even if we stop, all gases today, emissions today, we're still going to end up uh, in a compromised uh, situation. How does it make you feel as an author and a thought leader? Um, and I'm being a little bit sort of sinister about this and cynical as well, but maybe also thoughtful. Uh, fast forward 10 or 15 years, you'll be at a different stage of your life. Maybe you've written many more books and, and who knows. And you're looking back at this book that you wrote. What is there anything you can really do? Is there anything we, we can do as humanity goes to shake the system up beyond the piece of work that you've done? Because that, that's the whole point. Otherwise, it's academic. It's a really interesting conversation, but there's no pragmatism. Yes, I mean, I, uh, I think that is, you know, the billion dollar question. What can we do beyond, uh, you know, just uh, exploring, understanding and finding the right policies, uh, proclaiming them? I think it's... Uh, you know, the book is meant to raise consciousness, but also to instruct practitioners. Uh, for example, I wrote it for my my staff, my IMF colleagues, you know, mm. that often are involved into doing surveillance for countries. And uh, I often serve as a consultant in these missions. And I did, for example, for the United States 2021. IMF right. consulted, you know, Article 4. I did it for the Netherlands, Denmark. Um, I consulted for New Zealand. I did a piece on France. And I think uh, the, the European Union. So first of all, uh, first come, you know, first things first. We need to instruct people what are the the pathways mm. to change, mm. and then comes the lobbying. 
uh, and that's at the political level. Now, the lobbying is complicated because, you know, it's a bit like David and Goliath. You have these uh, global corporations behind the food systems uh, production is very concentrated. There's also a nexus between the chemical, uh, you know, corporations yeah. that basically produce, you know, all the fertilizers, the people that genetically modify food um, mm. and do genetical biotechnology experimentation on nature. Yeah. Um, and then, um, you know, the, the policymakers, and that's, you know, that's a circuit that, of course, um, it, it's hard to break. Uh, but I think in terms of us, which is the rest of the world, you know, there's there's a sense in which we can unite in behavior, we can um, encourage others, we can lead by example. I mean, there are individuals that have changed the course of history, and we can all do our part. We can right. You know, we can convince our single friends, our families, uh, we can write pieces, we can blog, we can make noise, you know, mm. and use the drums and uh, consumers do shift uh, production. That's right. a fact. Now, right. of course, it has to be a consistent consumer detectable, you know, shift in mm. preferences. And mm. uh, we've seen a lot of that going on. Um, I also think that, um, you know, one we will have to wait for, unfortunately, a more critical state of the planet to see real change. Mm. Um, and I think that um, I don't believe in change being, uh, you know, uh, brought from from above either uh, in a, in a very forceful way. I think it, diet is part of a personal freedom, right. and I think people should be <clears throat> aware and and shown the way mostly for their health, but also mm. for, you know, a million other reasons, mm. uh, but mostly for their health. And what is, I think, nice and unique about the things that um, we um, talk about in the book as solutions is that there is a, almost a divine coincidence between um, health and uh, in, in the people and health in the planet. So mm -hmm. if you do what's right for you, which of course, I guess everybody wants to do because if they care about themselves, you automatically you're actually uh, doing a great favor to the ecosystem in which you uh, exist. Yeah, and so, makes sense. Um, so that, that what we would need really is, um, I think it's a shift in, in the way we do medicine because uh, our health obviously deteriorates over time. And a lot of that deterioration is due to uh, wrong dietary behavior. Mm. Uh, none of that comes into play when people are forming medical schools. Mm. Uh, very little of that comes into yeah. the school years from preschool to you know, higher education. There's, you know, there's, um, there is no education, nutritional education. Yeah. And, and that all boils down when it comes together with financial constraints, we discussed, and then the, the lobbying and pressures of the uh, agricultural political nexus to defeat, you know, all good, all good aims. So yeah. I think focusing on areas that we never really talk about, like you know, reforming uh, health systems, uh, bringing uh, food education, nutrition education at school, um, and bringing in businesses such mm. that they are, you know, partners in change. I think all that matters. And sometimes you just need, you know, it's like a, it's like a, a, a wildfire. You need it to start somewhere and it's an example of success and it just picks up. So yeah. we all should get active. I, 
we could sit down and, you know, just be grumpy that we can't change the world. Mm. But, um, you know, I, I worked for this book. Um, I would never have thought I'd write a book about this. And mm. I've mm. talked to so many people. I think he has done something. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I think, you know, we can all do something. And sometimes it, it can be much bigger than we even uh, expect it to be. Yeah. So that, that's my positive message. Yeah. Maybe it's not a, you know, it's not a, a, a silver bullet answering a question, but uh, I think we should all work uh, towards change and uh, be realistic. Mm-hmm. And never, yeah. never be ashamed of talking about these things. You know, there's a lot yeah. of, you know, meetings like, oh, she's coming again with the, with the propositions. But I never lose an opportunity to raise mm-hmm. my hand and say, and what about food systems? You know. Mm-hmm. Mm. No, you're bang on. And it's beautifully put, actually. And I think uh, for all of our listeners out there, and I think we're straight talkers, we're all mavericks, we do things to try and change the face of humanity and the future that we are building for ourselves. And change does take time. However, it happens. It Unfortunately, it takes uh, time. I wanted to just touch on a couple of things. Maybe it's in your research. Uh, do you see countries or nations or continents out there that have been a little bit more protected or have been on the pathway? You talked earlier about Italy, whether Italy's in the same space it was when you were a little child, or have they also uh, got a little bit corrupted? Are you seeing any pockets of excellence or bright spots out there where you say, well, actually, that's pretty screwed because they are almost to the point beyond recovery, but these nations can be those uh, activist nations, they, they could be the change agents because actually they have the stories of success, as you quite rightly put. So tell us a little bit about the globe. Where do you see this being pretty horrible? And where do you see this being um, a bright spot where you think actually there's hope? So um, the Western diet and, you know, the, the baggage of uh, pollution and destruction, both of the human body and uh, the planet is unfortunately, unfortunately it's contaminated uh, great mm. parts of the world. You know, we're mm. talking about um, 98% of agriculture now follows these conventional methods, these industrial methods. And, and people in even very remote corners of the Amazons might find, you know, um, uh, a highly processed food uh, piece in you know in, in the little kiosk by by the road because um, the food system uh, big actors have penetrated this market often displacing you know indigenous food that was nutritious safe and adapted to the needs of um, you know um, population in, in right. specific climates right. okay so when I lived in Peru for example. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I ride horses on, on, in the Andes, we would go and cross, you know, quinoa plantations, you know, and mm. at that time, it was about um, 14 years ago, quinoa was not that popular as it is now that it's like, you know, everywhere you can find even quinoa, quinoa <laughs> bars, and, uh, and, you know, Neza was using kiwicha, which is a, a type, you know, of a similar family of, of quinoa, yeah. which basically is a pulse to feed its astronauts. So, um, based on this, you know, ancient, you know, Inca traditions and so forth. But, but, but um, these people have been convinced that, you know, quinoa is not good for them and they should eat, you know, pasta or white rice. And, you know, so it's all, it's all kind of like upside down. But um, 
there are examples. Uh, one big example that we, the book has examples of countries. So uh, a successful example of every policy that we talk about. Mm. And uh, in the in the realm of agriculture, uh, Bhutan is an example because mm. they they're a hundred percent organic countries, and we know it's the only country in the world that is net uh, negative on emissions. Right. right. And so they remained, you know, very close to their traditions. Uh, elsewhere, there's progress to trying to go back to what was uh, before, and there are countries that have set, for example, targets for uh, agroecological agriculture, organic agriculture, but they, it's very patchy, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, you it, it goes in in sort of circles. Sometimes, you know, two steps ahead uh, um, uh, and three backwards, and it's it's difficult to find entire continents or, or regions that, you know, are kind of safe or immune. Mm -hmm. I would say that, funnily enough, um, regions like, uh, or countries, for example, China, uh, where more traditional eating has remained for financial reasons also and income levels, or even African areas, has remained more, let's say, backward or away from industrial food are the ones that are more ahead in the mm. game of uh, controlling emissions. Mm. Mm. Uh, but, you know, the temptation is very high because the marketing and the penetration of high processed food and animal protein food uh, is, is, uh, is, you know, is, is very strong. Mm. Uh, they are big economic interests to go for economies of scale. And then there is this other temptation, which has been going on now for decades, which is that of eating exotic or international food, food that is not is not produced and does not belong to either the latitude or the longitude where you are at. Correct. And yes. that creates extreme <clears throat> additional pollution uh, and destruction because of, because of what it entails in terms of you know being able to carry, for example, mm. that you know pineapple fresh uh, from the Cote d'Ivoire to, uh, you know, a restaurant table in, in Quebec. Mm. Um, so mm. if you think about it, I mean, this is surreal. When I was a, a child, I mean, I think we had pineapple maybe for Christmas. Yeah. And a smoked right. salmon was like, you know, one year, yes, mm. two years, no. Mm. Now, you know, they just you know, flooded with smoked salmon. We didn't even know where it comes. <laughs> Um, and they say, or, or, you know, sustainably farmed. And then if you have a look what that means, I don't know if you saw the documentary, uh, yes. yeah, right. you know, then you, you start learning a few facts. And now you, I walk in a grocery store, I have a hard time buying anything. Correct. You know, I'm like, yeah, no, 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 I don't want this. No, I know about this. Uh, mm. This comes from, oh, this contains that or it, it's really everywhere you go, it's a food desert mm. for people that know what's mm. behind uh, either in terms of uh, human health or planetary health. Mm. That, that means that we need to uh, also as individual foster um, a different approach to agriculture, which is more solidary with small producer, local producers. And this is like, it's, right. you know, said a million times before, you know, the zero kilometer, <clears throat> But, you know, the, there's a truth in that, and that requires a little bit of imbe personal investment mm. in terms of, you know, catering to your, you know, household needs in a different Correct. way. Correct, yeah. But it might just sort yeah. all your problems, and yeah. both from a health and, a, a, you know, um, civil society contribution. And uh, in China, 
there are experiments. There's this young um, researcher, um, this woman who's she's created a thousand, you know, solidary um, uh, kind of um, uh, little production units, and she, she's now opening a network um, and she's not making any money out of it. And, uh, you know, they interview her and people laugh at her in TV shows, but, you know, everybody likes her because the, the food in China, in China is very, um, it's been found to be very toxic with, uh, you know, the heavy use of pesticides and fertilizers people got sick. Um, and so it's very hard to find edible, uh, you know, food, food that is, you know, considered uh, super safe from a health standpoint. Mm -hmm. And uh, these initiatives can be reproduced everywhere in the world. I mean, we don't have to, you know, this is, this is not rocket science. Um, yeah. we, we need to go back, not, not uh, forward in terms of um, innovation, some of this stuff. Yeah, you touched on uh, the local food elements and we're coming to the end of the program very soon. It flies by really quickly, but I want to touch on one or two things. So, <clears throat> This is this is an open dialogue, and there's an idea that I want to share with you, which I think has got legs. I recently came back from India. I was there for a delegation, and I've been there many, many times. And uh, I'm throwing this idea at you to reinforce this localized farming concept. And what I've noticed around the world, just an example of India and the UK, which is where I live in London, for example, classic sort of urban living. And as you go to a place like India, whether you go to the main city or you go to tier two, tier three cities, you see a relationship between the person and the home and the produce to be very, very different. It's a much more connected, intimate relationship to the extent that you still go to what we call in the West farmers markets. There they call it mundis, sabzi mundis, sabzi vegetable uh, shops yeah. and you know it's not glorious you do have an apple that looks a bit funny you do have a cucumber that's a little bit bent um, as opposed to in the west we we need everything looking the same you know the industrialization of optics as well is just absolutely ridiculous so i visited one of these farms and i was looking at some rural innovation and i started to realize i mean apart from the fact as you will know there's some incredible rural innovation going on even with robotics uh, with the level of know-how and education on seasonality, on even, even molecular uh, you know, compounds used around a seed to retain water for longer, which aren't you know, uh, inflicted with some of the chemicals that we see in sort of industrial farming, all sorts of things going on, because it's an agri-nation. It's almost the center of excellence of agriculture. And what it got me thinking is that in the West, we do a really bad job of it. I live in London. I have no connection apart from this that I'm doing. And none of my colleagues or friends have any connection with a, 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 an apple apart from buying it from the local supermarket. There's some local farm shops, but of course they're going out of business and they're super expensive now because of the cost of living. So, and we are a classic, you know, I want my strawberries all through the year. I want my mangoes all through the year. I mean, we're absolutely totally lost. And our, our perspective on life is distorted now. There's a localized farming, which I'm just throwing at you, is this concept, which I believe it should be called allotment at home. Allotment at home. And allotment, as you know, for other people's benefit, is just a, a piece of land where you, can, where you can grow some fruits and vegetables in a local city. But if we could create, if we could empower, like in India, each household, like mine, where I've got a garden, and the government gives me a subsidy, like they did on energy conservation and insulation of my house, where they say, here's a thousand pounds or thousand dollars or euros. For that, I'll also give you education that maybe India has exported to, to the West because they know how to do stuff affordable, but excellent. 
And I upgrade my knowledge over a period of time. So I start to make my own cauliflower in my allotment, which is only 30% of my garden, because I don't want to give away 50% because I want to do my barbecues, whatever it may be, you know. Um, and that can be then not only consumed by me, so it's local farming, I, I guess, which is what you're talking about. I can sell it. I can barter it going backwards to your point. I can barter it and I can take the excess to the local farmer's market because they always have a short supply. Why aren't things like this being discussed? And if they are, I'd love to know about them because this is how us at, at, in a home, in an urban uh, environment, a main metro city like London or New York or even Milan and various others, we can do something about it. I don't know what the numbers will be extrapolated out. You'll know much better. But are these sorts of things being discussed at policy level in your world? And if so, to what extent? Uh, I have not heard about this very like uh, uh, home localized, so localized at the home level <laughs> initiatives. But um, of course, uh, urban uh, agriculture is a, is a really great chunk of total global production. I mean, much more than what people think. And there are, you know, parts of the world that rely very strongly on urban agriculture done at home. And actually, in the 50s, in the US, every house, every single family house, including in towns, came with three fruit trees. Mm. I mean, there was a norm, you know, you had to have, if you, if you were missing one, the house mm. wasn't as worth as a house that had the three things. Interesting. And now, of course, the, you know, the lots are used to the full to maximize the volume of, mm. of the house itself. So I think we're moving, if anything, away from that. But people with COVID and being at home have rediscovered you know, the, the taste of doing something, you know, with a little cherry tomato plant in the back or some yeah. aubergines and, uh, or a cup of chicken. Um, my neighbor has four chicken in the backyard. Mm. And sometimes she asked me to look for, uh, <laughs> after and I've become a specialized chicken. <laughs> farmer. Um, but I, uh, even if, you know, the, capitalism is based on volumes and, and, and low quality. So profit is made in the wedging between you know, the large quantities sold and the lower the quality sold. Mm -hmm. So we need to go back to a, a, a lower volume, higher quality kind of mm -hmm. product for food. This is stuff we put, you know, inside our body and mm -hmm. we give to our children. Mm -hmm. And to do that, we need to, uh, I'm giving an example, you know, we, I restrict myself, you know, to apples and oranges in, in the winter as much yeah. as I can. Yeah. And you can actually stock up these things. I mean, they last a long, a long period. You know, you can have a, uh, couple of crates of apple on your mm. you know uh, on your deck and they, they go a long time or in the mm. fridge um so it's, it's also down to us and you know in, in kent you can drive a car from london and surely find some you mm. know good good apple orchards and uh you know stock up mm. um so it it's it's more of i think we have become lazy um yeah. in in uh, the way we mm. we uh forage we take care of our household and it's easier to go and get a clamshell plastic thing of strawberries to treat mm. ourselves because we deserve it because, you know, mm. we were stressed. We need to relax. Mm. So the, I think the problem in the food system for a consumer point of view is time. So these days we have no time to cook, no time to shop. Mm. And the industry understands that and they give us what we think we need. And that mm. comes at the expense of our health and the planet. So we need to mm. say, you know, I'm going to do less social media, more uh, going out in the country on the, on the weekend and finding a, a good farm where I can, uh, you know, get a couple of crates here and there and, and stock up as people used to do before. Right. And I encourage right. people to, 
you know, if something doesn't work, you have to change it. You have to change your behavior. And yes. we have to change our behavior. That's for our health. And I think it's uh, the, the accumulation of our behaviors will make a tremendous difference for future generations and the planet. And, uh, and that it takes a little step, just the one step at a time, you know, mm. maybe the, the meatless Monday, that's important. Just, you know, buy a book of other kinds of recipes and, you know, take a step. Yeah. You don't have to commit. You don't have to do it. You just, mm -hmm. just take the first step. And mm -hmm. sometimes it leads you uh, on the right path. Uh, mm -hmm. I wish we could have these subsidies. There are some allotments here near where I live where people go and, you know, uh, sometimes they're Chinese immigrants, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the uh, second generation or even first generation that they still love doing what they were doing at home. Mm -hmm. We've lost the, the taste for that because that takes time. It takes, you know, uh, it takes you out of the home, which is your comfort zone. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you got to have your hands dirty. Um, teach it to your children. You know, give them a task and tell them, you know, you got to let's create some uh, compost. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, we those are the seeds of the future. You know, mm -hmm. we can't. That's our responsibility. And let do it across the street. Let's say, you know, let's do a tomato competition. Mm -hmm. You know, it can't, it can't spread out. It's unpredictable what things, you know, uh, mm -hmm. stick or what don't. I encourage mm -hmm. everybody on the program listening in to do one good act for food systems yeah. uh, starting from New Year. Yeah, beautiful. Um, that I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head. And I think there's so much that you said, the accumulation of different um, small little things that you do that, that can make a big change. And I think um, however we can motivate ourselves, we can make a difference. I think the, re the realism factor is there. Uh, there is a dystopian view, if you want. There is a utopian view, if you want. And I do think we have some, in fact, quite a lot of power as individuals to be able to change that. The good thing though, uh, Nicoletta, as we close off, is that many of us, like this conversation we're having right now, and these 12 and a half, 13,000 people that are part of our group, and this is organic, right? This is nonprofit. This is not some marketing agency right. pushing things out left and right and center. It tells that, that there is, an appetite, it's probably the right word, an appetite for this sort of stuff where we're listening to people like you who are sharing their knowledge and their wisdom. And now I think it's our responsibility to do that one thing tomorrow morning or first thing in, in the new year. Right. And so, you know, I've started to do that in my life, you know, be more meat free, like a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we eat more vegetarian food, whatever, you know, whether it's Indian food or Italian food, some vegetarian food. And that carries through. And then even sausages, you know, meat-free sausages. And if you want that sort of, you know, you want the English breakfast with the fried egg and the sausage, you have a meat-free sausage and they're pretty tasty uh, these days. And it, I think it takes about 90 days or so, whatever the number is, to change a habit and to drive a behavior. We saw that during COVID. I think we now need to do that within ourselves. And I think what you're saying is don't think that you're insignificant. You know, I think what you're saying is don't think that you're insignificant. In fact, you are very significant if you decide that this is the way your, your home's going to be run. And so uh, that's very inspiring. And, you know, with that, I, I'm so grateful that you came on our show. I know you're super busy doing a thousand different things. It's been terrific talking to you. There's so much more, of course, we need to discuss with you at some point. Um, before we go, please tell us how this last 60 minutes has been for you. You know, usually we don't, I don't usually know my guests. We meet on the day, it's cold. And I treat it like a, you know, a, com a comfy so sofa. And we just don't have a glass of wine or uh, some nice Italian wine or whatever it may be. 
but how has the last 60 minutes been for you? Some feedback, just your experience, that's very important for us on Straight Talk and for me uh, to, to, to do better. Well, I think it was really, uh, it was fun and it's refreshing to hear interest in these matters because, I mean, when you, you do work like this uh, the, in the book, I mean, you, you're so involved in it, like you cooked a big dinner. And then, you know, if people continue to talk about it, uh, like yeah. uh, almost a year later, it, it is uh, encouraging. Yeah. And there's a lot of uh, gloom, I think, in the world these days. Yeah. Also, yeah. what can be achieved, what cannot be achieved. Um, I think um, I'm a believer in miracles. And I think we can we can make this miracle together. But I think people, and that's why I curate the information in the book. There's so much information out there <laughs> yeah. about you know, climate. This book... I think it's it says the way it is. Mm. Where are we? What can we do? Why it's important? And mm. it's the information is curated from a, a very uh, uh, large set of areas in a way that is digestible, and it it, it promotes action for right. all of us. So I think uh, talking to you, you know, it, it brought me back to some of the reasons why I arrived here, and um, and also. I think it's encouraging that people like you exist, that uh, we are a community, that it's we're alive mm. and that we're not taking failure as an option. And we are, mm. we're moving ahead as a group of committed humans, uh, parents and citizens. And that, you know, made my day. Thank That's you. That's amazing. Beautiful. Uh, and, and the feelings of mutual, it was such a great pleasure to have you on the show. We will be knocking on your door again at some point in the future to have another dialogue maybe next year. Any plans for another book um, down the line? Have you thought about it yet? Or it's uh, uh, something you haven't discussed or thought about in your mind? So there's something, I'm, there are two projects I'm working on. One is the economics of water, because I think that's a, a very yeah, big, uh, more microeconomic <laughs> aspects and uh, complex. Um, the other is um, I'm, I'm working on some... Um, the relationship between biodiversity and medicinal plants and, and economics and how, you know, this can, has, or could affect, you know, well-being, both uh, from a health and a financial point of view of, of population. So that's, you know, we know that wow. medicine okay. used to be a different thing before and uh, we've forgotten. And now with COVID, I think we've learned that maybe um, we should go back. Yeah, beautiful. Well. Uh, Straight Talk has, as you know, has had so many speakers. So when you are about to embark on that journey, we have covered alternative uh, medicine, uh, you know, whether it's okay. you know, Chinese medicine or it's Ayurveda, and it's linked to wellness. And there are many of our past speakers, in fact, Straight Talkers, who are actually studying this. One person in particular has been studying Tibetan medicine um, for over three years now and has, you know, has immersed herself in it, who I will connect you to. So either way, we would love to stay in touch. You're part of our community now. And, uh, if you're on WhatsApp and you want to, want to engage with a group of about 90 of us, we're all pretty crazy, you know, uh, mavericks. I do. I do. Yeah. I do. Yeah. I will, um, I'll take your, after we stop the recording, I will take your number and I'll add you to the group uh, because that's a fantastic platform to just throw your ideas, to get some feedback. So um, many of our past speakers are on it as well. So um, 
Uh, Nicoletta, what a pleasure. Thank you so much for me. And um, I'm really happy that you came on our show. Have a wonderful day ahead and uh, look forward to catching up with you. Everyone else, click on subscribe on the bottom right when you're watching this episode so you can watch many such fantastic shows in the future. Uh, be well, may the force be with you and uh, take care. Thank you. <laughs>